For Your Infill Nation is brought to you by Gusto Mexican Restaurant, reminding you to remove the wrapping on the tamale prior to eating. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. Sangre para sangre. Welcome to For Your Inflammation, a podcast about good movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your hosts, John Kaplan. And Zach Graham. You know, there comes a time where you have to admit to yourself that you can't just have a podcast made up entirely of schlock film and Bigfoot erotica. So, like, this is the end of March Madness, and I wanted to do something different. You know, like, we had an animated film, we had back-to-back, like, cheesy, crappy horror movies, but I, w- I wanted to do something with a little bit more meat to it, something a little bit, something we could sink our teeth into, and and um, that's why I picked this film, Blood In, Blood Out, from 1993. So, um, Zach, you suffered enough this month. I wanted to give you something else. What did you think about this movie? Okay, so <laughs> I still kind of suffer because this movie is like three hours long. Yes. Like, it is, like, it's an insane amount of time. And it's not that, like, everything is not interesting that's going on. It just kind of feels like the movie doesn't really get started until we're in San Quentin. Mm-hmm. And, like, once we're in San Quentin, it's all like pretty good it's just like this movie is so odd it's almost like a tale of three movies Mm -hmm. except like they continually forget about like the third movie which is like the uh the painter brother like i feel like we don't get enough of his story Mm -hmm. like at all but but i mean i don't know if maybe that's just because he was the most interesting character to me or what it is but overall i kind of enjoyed this movie it's almost like like this came in a long string of like gangster films from like the early 90s so like you know you got like boys in the hood and juice and like uh, like movies like that like hood movies quote unquote like I i don't like using that term because i don't feel like it's my term to use but that is kind of like like that's what the wikipedia article says so i mean i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. Uh, it definitely has a certain flavor to it. It kind of reminds me a little bit of The Warriors in a in a certain way. I mean, obviously, like, the themes of there being, like, street violence and gangs and stuff, but, like, even just the way that it's filmed kind of gives me that feeling, and it's supposed to take place roughly at the same time that that movie was released. Correct. So, like, this takes place in the 70s into the 80s. Yeah. So, like, this is, like, this is kind of, like, prime, like, um, East L.A., like, gang violence time, like, not quite because it's kind of like boys in the hood takes place like late 80s early 90s and then most that's when most of these movies take place because that's when kind of like all the like garbage was going on there and like i don't know like it's just it's so odd watching these movies now because like they are equally exploitative but at the same time like informative Uh uh-huh because like while it's a dramatization of what's going on there and it's very exploitive and like very like ah look at this look at all this shit that's going on over there it's like i feel like america kind of needed something like this at the time because you know when you hear like when you hear on the news all the time like oh there's there's another shooting in east la this happens every day it's like you know you just think like man like these must just be like evil people over there or something but like it's not really like i feel like these movies do kind of let you into like what it's like kind of what it must have been like to be a young person during that time so like is it exploitive yes but in another way it's like well at least now you kind of could see a perspective 
perspective, even if it is whitewashed in a way, or if it's for a white audience. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think you've actually touched on a lot of stuff here that's really relevant to the movie. That in particular, like the responsibilities the media has to represent parts of the culture and like who needs to do that and why it needs to happen and when it needs to happen. Um, I, I, I personally don't find this film to be super exploitative. I think it was a truly honest effort on their part to explore the life and explore the world of people living in this part of our lives i I, we'll get a little bit more into it later i'm actually really glad that you brought up the the three movie thing too because you're right it's a very long movie and uh we'll touch a little bit on it later they actually did plan to make it a trilogy so it's really funny that you should have made that observation right and honestly like i think while we're talking about like the length of the film i kind of think this would have been a better like mini series than it would a movie like i feel like they didn't get to tell the whole story that they wanted to because it kind of ends on a weird note and like, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it later but like the uh, like, you know spoilers if you haven't seen the movie but it's also from 93 so um, I'm just gonna talk about it like the ending where they reveal that Miklo was the one that ordered um the gang boss to be killed yeah essentially like by proxy like I feel like that wasn't quite earned like I don't feel like we saw him turn into that person like we didn't get to see that well, you know, maybe it's a little bit more of like, hey, just the way that it is and the way that people are. And like, like you said earlier, like they're not necessarily evil people. They're just doing what they have to to survive and make the most of what they're living with. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm just saying narratively, like I felt like that was kind of like out of left field. Like there was nothing like leading me to believe that that might be what's going on. Uh huh. Because like the way that they set it up was like it kind of made it look like maybe the like, you know, like the ward and the um and the POs were probably like responsible for that Mm -hmm. but it was or not POs COs (laughs) um it's like they didn't give me enough indication that Miklo might have been in on that Mm. because if I had had more inkling about that then it wouldn't then it would have felt better but like in a way it was like oh okay I mean I guess I guess that's cool that you did that. Okay, yeah, no, it's definitely one of those things that we can talk about as we get further into it, but we do have something else that we need to hit, uh, the other part of the podcast where we talk about cocktails. You know, we make a drink to go with the movie, and that's kind of our shtick. So we have done some kind of, uh, like, Latin American-inspired, you know, cocktails before. We've had different greetings or different liquors or whatever, but I'm interested to see what you do. You know, it's March Madness. You do the cocktails. I do the movies this time. So uh, what do you have for us here? So I did not make a cocktail for this because I think there's a great injustice that we need to talk about a lot more and i think it's time i think it's high time that tecate the mexican beer comes up on the same level as pbr huh because okay i think they're both equally as good but i feel like tecate is shit it like gets shit on a lot more because it's not a corona so it's not like a you know like middle level like you know middle management kind of beer it's always put on the bottom shelf but it's always like you know a little bit below pbr somehow and i'm like i feel like that's not fair because tecate is a cheaper and b tastes relatively the same like it kind of tastes like if you mixed a bud light and a corona together but like i mean it's not bad it's really refreshing on like a hot day like i remember uh, i went to the shaking knees festival in atlanta georgia probably like 2015 16 i can't really remember but that was the only beer they had was tecate really yeah so i like but it was so refreshing like in that 
like just in the dead of summer, just heat blaring down on you, trying to listen to some music and not like think about how hot it is. You just drink a Tecate and you're like, oh, well, this is perfect now. Okay. Yeah, no, I totally see what you're saying there. Uh, Living in California, uh, Tecate is everywhere. Like Tecate is way easier to find than PBR. Oh, okay. So maybe it's a regional thing then. I think it could be, uh, maybe distribution here is different. I know that the places that are, like, liquor distributors are, like, different from East Coast to West Coast. Like, we don't actually get Yingling out here. Which is a crime, because Yingling, like, I feel like Yingling should be what Budweiser is. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I like Yingling a lot better. I honestly, I like Tecate as well. Like, a Tecate light, if I'm gonna have light beer, that's a good go-to. Exactly. That's what I'm saying, is, like, I feel like people on the east coast just like don't know about it mm-hmm. yeah and, and I, I would be interested to know why that is exactly i mean i guess because like in the beerscape, it's just it's just such dense competition and if something's not like fucking like 10 out of 10 amazing like it kind of just gets lost in the sauce i see i see but like that's the thing is like i feel like with beer like beer culture specifically like we're all chasing like the best beer we can find but it's like what about like the most sustainable beer you can find Mm. like what's something that's gonna do the job every time and i think tecate is like a big runner up for that like i personally like pbr more but like i will take a tecate yeah i know i think they recently did a few different versions of the pbr and it was the like different (sighs) i wish i could remember off the top of my head what exactly they are i know they made an ipa and i want to say they made a light pbr but it took them a while to get that stuff out to market or at least it's for someone like me to find it and i think tecate does a a really good job with that where Tecate has like three go-to beers they have like the regular like Pilsner beer they have the light beer and they have a chelada are you familiar with like canned chelada beers I am I've just never had one they're not bad uh you go to the store and you can get a big old can of like Tecate chelada and you can also get a foam cup that is lined with tahine uh see okay look this is this is where i guess like maybe living out on the west coast might like get me into tahine but like i cannot do like the sweet and spicy or like even like sour and spicy that's almost like what it always ends up being for me like especially like you know like lemon takis mm-hmm. like i don't like that like sour lemon and then like a burst of heat like i because i love spicy shit and i like sour shit i just don't think i like them together but like i said like maybe i just need to like (laughs) maybe it's one of those things where you have to like kind of get used to it before you really appreciate it yeah i could say so there's so much of that stuff out here like basically anything you i want to say they even have like a lays chips version like they have the limon lays that are like you know lime lemon flavor and i'm pretty sure they also have a no they do yeah they have a chili lime lays chip as well they got like a chili lime uh doritos they got like chili lime like takis obviously are like a chili lime thing like there's a there's a lot of that out here and you can definitely get it in drinks specifically you can get them on uh those cups that you get for chilada so literally it's just a, a cup specifically for chilada and it's got tahine all over the outside well tahine it's like chili lemon salt is basically what it is right and like i'm here for it and if people enjoy it that's cool but I just, I can't get into it, and I don't know why. It's kind of like anime in that way. Like, it's like, I get it. A lot of people like it. I just don't get it. You heard it here first, folks. Um, Tahine is like anime, but different. (laughs) 
for for Zach Graham from For Your Inflammation specifically, talking is the anime of seasonings. And now for a man who's the poly shore of podcast synopsis readings, we have Frank Synopsis in studio. Frankie, baby, give it to me straight. What's going on? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, honestly. Uh, things are warming up a little bit. Uh, I, I can see my toes. You can see your toes. Now, is that because you don't have shoes on or because you have holes in the shoes you have on it is because of the holes in the shoes but uh, i have also lost all of my fat layer surviving in the winter so i can now see all of my toes so, wait okay so you you grow a fat layer over your feet to keep warm in the winter in central park and it goes away by spring like do you have to work out to do that or does your body just do that it's a little bit like a bear. You kind of get a little bit of a plug in there while you're hibernating. A plug in. Like, so, you know what? <laughs> it's, explain to me how this works, Frank. All right. Well, uh, you eat enough garbage and inside your body stops up and you can hold on to all the food that you eat so that you can survive the long winter. I, so are you asleep the entire winter or does your body just do that for the entirety of winter and you're still like up and moving around and shit? I'm actually not entirely certain it doesn't do it during the summer. Fair enough. All right, Frank. So did you have a chance while you were um, gaining and ungaining weight at a rapid rate? Uh, did you have a chance to watch Blood In, Blood Out? I sure did. All right. Well, why don't you tell the fine folks at home what this movie's all about? All right. Miklo returns to East Los Angeles after another falling out with his abusive father. He reconnects with his neighborhood group, Los Vatas Locos, and gets picked up after a rival dies in a brawl gone wrong. Can he survive San Quentin Correctional? How will his friends change when he returns back from the clink? Perfect, Frank. Thank you. D does this, uh, is this kind of like what it's like for people who live in Central Park? Yes, it's also what people are like living inside San Quentin. Y yes, that, that is indeed what the movie is like uh thank you very much frank uh we'll be happy to have you back next week i suppose all right well i'll see you then all right thanks frank all right john are you ready let's yeah i, I want to hear i want to hear about this movie um do you have somebody nearby that's like raising horses no i do not why oh weird it looks like there's like a horse patty outside you know like a bunch of like dung oh well I think Frank has now evolved, well, I guess devolved from using bathrooms to just kind of going. Did he Did he leave a track or is it just like one big pile? No, it's just kind of one big pile. It's got a bunch of like trash in it. So um, this would be a good time to remind everyone, uh, if you want to like just send us money so we can get a better synopsis reader, that would be great. Um, someone who is uh, like, you know, maybe slightly less Frank would be great you know it would be great to have someone sponsor us or something so like you know put the word out there for us guys that would be great yeah yeah why don't we get into the meat of the film let's do it all right so the film was directed by taylor hackford uh the producers were also taylor hackford and jerry gershwin uh the writer was ross thomas and the screenplay was by jimmy santiago baca jeremy lacone and floyd mutrox music was by billy conti and it stars benjamin pratt as paco Jesse Borrego as Cruz, Enrique Castillo as Montana, Damian Chapa as Miklo, and uh, also has Danny Trejo as Geronimo. A relatively minor character, but uh, cool to see Danny Trejo again. It is always good to see Danny Trejo in anything. It was produced by Hollywood Pictures and distributed by Buena Vista Pictures. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because Buena Vista Pictures is a Disney-affiliated production company that put out films such as Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right, and also the people who uh, don't ever want to re-release movies, but we'll get 
get into that later. Yeah, yeah. So there was a budget of $35 million and a box office of $4.5 million. A bit of a serious disparity there. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that upon, like like I said, later. Uh, th- this movie was absolutely just, like, they, they did not put this movie in a position to win at all. Yeah, we've seen that a couple of times over the years. Um, I want to say that, what was it? There, there was one in particular where they just did not, I think it was Disney that did this. Sword in the Stone. Yeah, they did this to Sword in the Stone, too. Yeah, it's just... It it seems as if when they don't believe in a movie, they just don't want to, like, do anything to help it. And it's just like, well, then why did you bother spending money on it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And, I mean, with a budget of $35 million in the early 90s, I mean, huge films were made for way less. I mean, if we look, even just, like, two weeks ago at Night of the Demons, I mean, what, like, $3 million? No, it had, like, a $1 million budget, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, like, a movie like this where it's supposed to be an epic, I mean, it it could have honestly gone a lot more expensive because I think Goodfellas, which is, like, the movie that I would most closely compare this to, it's almost like a Goodfellas meets, like, Boys in the Hood kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's just, like... I don't know. Like, they they just didn't believe in it enough. And, like, I'm sure we'll get into it because I don't want to, like, jump the gun on this because I really do want to talk about how good this movie is before we talk about how badly it performed. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely fair. But it's funny that you should mention Goodfellas because that is a common comparison made with this film, specifically to those uh, Italian mafia-adjacent movies. Like, I mean, The Godfather obviously comes to mind. Uh, some of the critical receptions point out this movie as being like a godfather rip and i don't think that's very fair but it is very easy to see the comparisons there there is a lot of like uh like criminal politics going on there's a lot of like uh like prison stuff going on like it's it's very interesting and uh, to go back to what we said kind of at the beginning of the podcast it is a little bit also like the warriors where it's kind of like action focused at times right and I think that comparing this movie to The Godfather or saying that or specifically saying that it's a ripoff is like completely unfair. Yeah, because it's the point because it's yeah, exactly. It's like the Italians were not the only people doing those types of things. And especially they weren't really doing it in the 80s and 90s. Right. Like it's not like organized crime is not just specific to the Italian mafias of like the Northeast in the, you know, forties to like seventies. Like it's, there's so, so, so much more to it than that. And like, I mean, it's, it's even still going on today and it's not it, like, it's just, it almost comes off as like, I guess would it be xenophobic to say that like, Oh, only Italians do organized crime. You know, I don't think that's necessarily what they meant by, it. I think probably what they meant by it was just to like, this is riding the coattails of, big movies like the godfather by taking those criminal things oh, I, and trying to sell it i guess so but it's just like it's different like it's a different setting and like yes it's kind of the same idea but they like this movie was far from the only movie doing that at the time that's true that's true well why don't we talk a little bit about the production of the film because there is a lot to talk about let's do it so the first draft of the script was written in the early 80s by Gershwin and Thomas, and uh, principal photography didn't actually start until May of 1991, about two years before the release of the film. Uh, Blood In, Blood Out was originally going to be the directorial debut of actor James Edward Olmos. Uh, he uh, would have starred in the film as well, but he ended up declining. 
Uh, they actually considered a lot of other people, including Sean Penn, to do that. So I can only assume that uh, this actor-director role was aimed toward the uh, the character Miklo, which is played by Damien Chapa. So I think that he pro I know why he dropped out of this movie. It was so he could go direct his own thing that he wrote himself, which was um, American Me. Ah, so this is another like crime drug kind of movie. Correct. So like they're both like they're both kind of the same movie. So I think Edward James almost just like felt more personally connected to that movie. So I think he dropped out of this one. Hmm. So uh, he just had him on tap, like two movies that were like very similar in nature, and he just had to pick one over the other. Like, what what must that be like? Um, I mean, I would assume like especially at that time, um, be Edward James almost being the person that he is and being. In, like the previous films that he had been in i'm guessing he might have had like four or five of projects like this that came across his table man imagine that well the movie was filmed on location in los angeles east los angeles and san quentin state prison so i think it would be impossible to talk about this movie without addressing how much of the film takes place in prison and how big of an impact that has on the story because i mean when we look at the character uh, he is technically the star miklo uh he is the one that ends up going to prison and it follows his story through and kind of like how his like boyhood outsiders-esque like neighborhood gang it kind of has to become something a lot more adult reflecting kind of how he has to become a lot more adult as the years go on Correct. And like, it, it's really sad to see that like, that's how some people's lives do go. Like they grow up in prison and it's just, it's, it's, it really is terrible. And I hate that it's still happening. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think like, it's important to note like the differences here. Cause like when we look at something like uh, these uh, Los Vatos Locos characters here in LA, um, they're, they're mostly just kids, you know, like they are taking care of themselves because they don't necessarily trust the law to do it for them or maybe they're at some kind of disadvantage, you know, and they they feel the need to do that. And it kind of turns into something a little bit darker that leads them into the life of crime. And I don't think it's necessarily even that they're committing a bunch of crimes. It's just that they get in a fight and a guy dies. Well, now it's a murder, you know, and just things can escalate so quickly as you, I, I don't know, become closer and closer to that criminal element there. And then when you go into prison, it's like, whoa, look at all these other guys that are like actual hardened criminals. And then Miklo kind of has to become more like those guys to get through prison yeah exactly and it's that's it's just it's sad because like that part of the movie was just very real like that seemed like a very real situation that could happen like dramatized yes poorly acted at times yes but or well, i shouldn't even say poorly acted poorly written at times but like it is real like it's a real situation that happens and you know i i just wish that our law enforcement was a little more understanding in these situations where it's just like, I mean, you can't just let people like try to murder your brother. Like, because like, and that's it's exactly like you said, like they, they take the law into their own hands because the law is not taking care of them. Right. And that is an unfortunate piece of it. I think when this movie takes place, I mean, it starts off in what, 1973, 1972. Yes. Um, this was kind of like the first grumblings of what would ultimately become the war on drugs. And as the film goes on, uh, 
uh, spoiler alert, if you hadn't seen it already, uh, Miklo goes back to prison. And when he goes back to prison, like all that time later, it's like, oh man, things are different now. Like it is all about the drugs. It is all about the war on drugs. Everybody in here, I think they said like what, 80% of everybody in the prison was there on a drug charge. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's how it still is today. Yeah. And the war on drugs kind of did that to people. This is not a, like a podcast about politics, but it is something that we kind of have to address to like encapsulate what's going on and why the film takes place in prison and what happens in the prison at the time. Yeah, and it's just, um, <laughs> God damn you, Ronald Reagan, that's all I have to say. Right. How many times? How many times? <laughs> How many times do I have to say, God damn you, Ronald Reagan? Um, until people stop bringing up Ronald Reagan. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, San Quentin. The film was actually filmed in San Quentin. Like, the vast majority of these prison scenes were filmed there. The inside of the prison and the outside of the prison, they used 350 inmates and some of the prison staff as extras and background characters. Some of the prison staff also contributed as, like, technical advisors. So, like, I guess helping them find out how they can use their equipment inside or, like, places that will work for their lighting or their sound or whatever. It's actually really, really interesting. Uh, Daniel Vasquez, who plays the warden of San Quentin, was not an actor. He, he was actually the warden of San Quentin at the time and after reading the film and being so impressed by it he immediately greenlit the filming inside of the prison this is wild like honestly like this is some shit right here yeah like like how do you get to film inside the actual san quentin when there's actual inmates in there like it just seems so odd you know i i don't know i i would be interested to know why he wanted to do it or why he was so interested in doing it and also why so many inmates were involved in it i mean i guess if i'm in prison and someone's filming a movie like oh that's kind of a cool thing to be involved with that breaks the monotony like a lot so like i oh, guess for I'd be sure interested, no matter what the payoffs might be but still i mean it is kind of a unique thing i'd be interested to know how many like movies that take place in prisons actually use proper prisons and let alone the prison that's being filmed about for the right. movie right <laughs> It's, um, I know that, like, there are prisons that are, like, no longer being occupied that get used for filming a lot, but, like, to film in an actual working prison, and then not only that, have that be the prison that the character is in, just seems very odd, and honestly, I mean, I guess it probably saved them some money, because, like, I don't know if you have to pay those inmates for being in the movie, like, I actually don't. I think you'd have to. And I mean, I guess I'd take what I can get. I mean, it's also worth mentioning, though, that like some of these scenes were not filmed in San Quentin. They were filmed in like other California jails and prisons. And there was one soundstage at Raleigh Studios in Hollywood that they used, too. But like I said, the vast majority of these were filmed in San Quentin, which is actually really interesting. I mean, so like, was it just like tracking shots were filmed in San Quentin or was like or were like the main actors like actually in San Quentin? Oh, they were actually inside San Quentin. That is so odd. Yeah. Yeah, no, they had I mean, like a special like detail and they had like special rules about like what the film crew had to wear so that they don't get confused with inmates and like it, it was a whole thing. I, I, I don't know. Like that, I can't put my finger on it, but something about that feels icky. I mean, it's a little weird. I think this is where people would probably start pointing to like exploitative stuff, but they didn't use that to sell the movie. It's not like it was like filmed in a real prison or like filmed in San Quentin prison. They, they didn't do anything like that, you know? No, like, and 
the only reason I knew is because I was like just kind of watching the credits as they roll by, and I was like, "Thank you to San Quentin Prison," and I was like, "What the actual fuck?" Oh yeah, no, they filmed a lot of it there. It also bears mentioning that the gangs that appear in the film are based on actual gangs. So like the Aryan Vanguard is representative of like the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a real gang. Uh, the Black Guerrilla Army represents the Black Guerrilla Family, which is also a real gang. And La Onda represents the Mexican Mafia, which is, as I understand it, kind of a hodgepodge of like smaller organizations that. Make make up like a larger criminal enterprise you would be correct about that we don't have time for all of that but um there are <laughs> there's shit to read about this and it's hella interesting so i highly recommend it and speaking of things being hella interesting uh danny trejo as we mentioned earlier plays a relatively minor character named geronimo he actually served time in san quentin prior to becoming an actor and then returned to san quentin for some of this movie i'm I, I mean, I'm dumbfounded. Like, that's that's some shit. Like, can you imagine? Like, because he was probably sitting in there being like, man, I would love to be an actor. And then he finally gets a shot to be an actor. And they put him right back into prison where he was dreaming of being an actor. Like, in a weird way, it's a full circle moment. But in another way, it's like, man, that is profoundly fucked up. It is really weird to a certain kind of way. And, I, you know, if anybody knows, like, if we're getting this wrong, if it was another prison they filmed those scenes at, I want to know about it. It's just that, like, it's really interesting that he would be in a movie about almost about San Quentin having been to actual San Quentin like how much consulting do you think they did with Danny Trejo I I mean they I mean a lot like he must have like really kind of known what it was like yeah I mean, for sure. And it would have been, this movie was, the principal photographer's in 1991, and I mean, the movie takes place in 90, or 73 on, so I mean, sometime in the 20 years prior to that, he, he did go, so I mean, uh, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's almost like the perfect, like, like, genie, like, kind of fulfillment story. Weird. But, I mean, at the same time, Danny Trejo is one of the hardest working actors in Hollywood right now. I mean, like, that guy's in everything. That's true. That's true. And you know what? Well earned. Well earned. He's great. I fucking love Danny Trejo. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this earlier and that they were trying to make the film a three-part trilogy. So if I guess we have to say this up front. The original reel was five hours long. So <laughs> this movie and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes. <laughs> what a weird selection of movies to have be five-hour original cuts. This one may be more worthy of a five-hour cut, but like, goddamn, I still want to see that four-and-a-half-hour cut of planes trains and automobiles oh man just the music look listen get get the original four and a half hour reel and have somebody else do the music because goddamn the music in planes trains and automobiles is fucking horrible it's like underground cia torture site they just put you in there they hold your eyes open and make you watch trains planes and automobiles four and a half hour cut on repeat for days at a time just put the fucking soundtrack on that's all you need just the soundtrack oh my god uh well, there were plans to make that into a three-part film. Obviously, releasing a five-hour movie just to the general population in a cinema setting is going to be pretty tough. So the first film would have been all the way up to where uh, Miklo goes to prison. The second film would have contained everything that happens in the prison. And then the third film would have been Montana's daughter and how she grows up more or less in a life of crime and ultimately finds out that Miklo was the one that ordered her father to be killed. Yikes. Yeah. Pretty I mean, intense. I'd love... I'd love to see that movie. I mean, I feel like we never will, but no. like, I'd love to see that movie. Yeah. You know, we had like our chance with Starship Troopers and like we got 
a decent first movie and then a d- okay sequel and then everything past the sequel sucks this movie ain't getting a sequel no it, and what i feel like we're about to talk about that aren't we no yeah 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 we are let's talk about the release and the reception so this will kind of uh transition on from here uh the film was released to test audience in rochester new york tucson arizona and las vegas nevada in the weeks leading up to the nationwide release which was on april 30th 1993 so if you know anything about your 90s history uh this was actually very close to the rodney king riots good you know talk about perfect timing like you know how um ben folds accidentally well not accidentally but he released an album that was supposed to like rocket him to stardom which would be uh rock of the suburbs he released it on 9-11 i'm so sorry (laughs) so i feel like ben folds didn't i mean ben folds has made a great career for himself but i feel like he didn't get to like the stardom level that he should have because people were just not fucking with anything on that day yeah no that, that, that is pretty tragic, actually. And that actually is kind of what happened here, in a sense. Uh, the delays in Los Angeles were actually delayed out until May 21st of that year for fear of inciting violence after the acquittal of four officers involved in the Rodney King incident the year prior. I, I don't necessarily want to get into, like, the politics of that on this podcast. But, um, yeah, so that was a whole bunch of bullshit. And it, I mean, the, it shit just popped the fuck off. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that this happened a year later and they were like okay hey we're gonna release a film full of like crooked cops and street violence and stuff and frankly racial violence uh right now when they're acquitting four police officers that were involved in a like serious case like rodney king yeah probably not the best idea or so they thought Uh, they actually ended up changing the name of the film on release from blood and blood out to bound by honor for fear of inciting further violence because blood and blood out is an actual phenomenon that occurs in criminal circles right and if you're not familiar with that particular concept it's um you have to um how do how do i put this lightly um there has to be blood given to get into the organization and if you want out you have to give that blood back and uh, giving it doesn't necessarily have to be your own blood but giving it back certainly has to be yes exactly um so, so I, <laughs> I feel like that was the most like a uh, sponsor pc friendly way i could have explained that it is a little touchy i i think that's safe to say um director taylor hacksworth was actually really upset about the changes that they made to the release dates and the title and stuff and really about the whole attitude of the studio toward the film's release in general uh he really really stood by the film and said that like hey the thing about it is that this movie is the complete opposite of that like this movie does not endorse street violence at all it really just shows how it tears people's lives apart it it, it shows how like it crime doesn't pay you know and like how it ruins people and how like people are maybe fundamentally good it's just they're put in situations that make them more or less likely to do something that we would consider bad to survive right and and that's the thing that i feel like people don't understand about just anything like if you're in a situation where you're constantly in flight or flight like every situation every decision decision you make is fight or flight it's like you either find a way to get yourself out of it or you become numb to it and neither and like neither one is bad it's just like if you become numb to it like i mean yeah things like that happen in this movie can happen and it's just it's really sad that the war on drugs and just in general like white
white America just like turning its back on these people. And like, I feel like that's what the movie shows. It really shows like, and like while some of like the, the racial things in the movie are like kind of outdated or like they use outdated language, it's like that is how it is. No, for sure. Like, it also does a good job of showing that there are some bad actors out there. I think specifically in the prison, like, yeah, there are people that are kind of corrupt or like, yeah, there are people that are actually just terrible people that are in here. But like the people like maybe like Miklo, he's a, he's not necessarily a bad guy. He just got wrapped up in some bad stuff and he ended up there too. He's like, okay, well, he has to live in there with those people now. He has to live yeah, in there like, with the hard killers. He has to live in there with the neo-Nazi guys. Exactly. It's like he made choices that got himself there, but he's not necessarily a bad person and i think i think he was molded into doing what like what he ended up becoming i feel like he was molded into that it's almost like a um but it it, like it's kind of the opposite story of like a breaking bad because that's kind of like the same kind of story where someone starts off as like you know an innocent person and like turns into this like hardened criminal like in breaking bad i feel like walter white had more agency and like he knew what he was doing and how evil he was becoming I don't think Miklo necessarily understood how evil he was becoming because he was just trying to survive. Right. And I mean, uh, the the organization is all that he had left. You know, it, it, it's it's kind of sad to see where it's like, hey, La Onda is like falling apart. They're getting taken over by these other groups like this is not going to be good for anybody. And he's like, well, this is my life. I, I made this my thing so I could help people that I care about. And now it's being taken away from me. And like he just kind of does like he gets pushed to do things that, you know, he might not have done when he was, you know, prior to going to prison and i mean i i think that's a a cool character arc for him you know i I think that it is dynamic even though maybe like the character's not written super dynamic i I think he is like he's written complexly i just like i said i this movie definitely suffered from edits because i feel like some of the issues i had with the movie i kind of understood that there was clearly more story that they didn't get to tell us that's true that's true and i mean with five hours of content and cutting it down to a three-hour movie i mean three hours is a long time but it's not five hours of material long you know what i mean right like if they would have if disney would have i mean and we could like say disney it's because they are like if they would have chosen to maybe shelf this for a year and then split it into two parts and then send it out like i feel like this could have been a really big movie and it's kind of a shame that it's not the the legacy of this movie is just like nobody knows about it like i hadn't even heard of it this movie is not even available like to rent online you have to buy a dvd of it and i'm surprised we even get that it and like this is a thing with disney like if something doesn't perform well or like in this case like they didn't even give it a wide release they spent 35 million dollars on this movie it didn't even give it a wide release and now like it's literally impossible to find and it's such a good movie and like i feel like it's a movie that deserves like a like a blu-ray treatment like i wish that disney would allow other companies like scream factory or severin or even kino lorber i wish they would give them the opportunity and the license to do movies like this because i feel like there's like i feel like if more people saw this movie they would love it but i mean i can't even tell you how many people have probably even seen this movie i mean honestly i had no idea that it existed until relatively recently and it was on complete accident when i happened to come across it i just was seeing it like on a tv i was like what movie is this and I, oh yeah it's blood and blood i was like what is that i've never heard of that before and it turns out it's this huge movie that like i say huge it's a really long movie that has like a cult following and i you're right this is definitely something that i would hate to see be lost to history and 
with uh, five hours of back footage, I mean, there could be a complete release for people that wanted to buy it. I mean, I think people would want to see that if they like this movie. I It's hard for me to imagine committing five hours to this movie, but I mean, maybe it's a lot bigger and a lot cooler with all five hours in it. Well, that's what I'm saying. And like, I just, I don't feel like we're ever going to get it though. Because like the this movie, it's almost like this movie needs a re-campaign. Like if you, and that's what I would say, if you're listening to this podcast, if you found us because you love this movie and like you wanted to hear somebody talk about it a welcome we're shit thank you for hanging out uh but b um in order to get a more proper release of this thing we have to like make sure that the people who own the rights in this case disney like know that we want it yeah no i could agree with you and i mean it it really does suck that they didn't put the, quite the the effort into releasing it. On the opening weekend, it got like a million dollars back from all 391 screens that it was played on. And I mean, that's not very big. Like 391 movie theater screens sounds like a lot. But when you talk about the entire United States, I mean, come on. Like there's 50 states, you know? So like... It, exactly. It, like th- this movie didn't even... Like the only presence it had on the East Coast was in Rochester, New York. Yeah, that was the only pre-screening. Like they really like and i was reading a little bit about this is like they just they just didn't think that people outside of like the west coast would even care about this movie and it's like well i mean the godfather released everywhere and most people have never been to italy don't even know any italians and you know like don't know anything about organized crime so it's like that's stupid i hate when they do this and it's i mean honestly in this case it's borderline racist you know it makes you wonder right and that is a huge theme throughout the movie that we're gonna have to touch on here before we wrap it up but like what that means for people and like the individuals in the film and what they represent so uh, let's get through the rest of this and then just talk about that i mean Critical response, no surprise, was kind of polarizing. So some people thought it was like pornographically violent and like exploitative. And other people said that it was like artistic and it was like a meaningful representation of people in the East Los Angeles experience. And like, that was cool. But like, it it really just kind of depended on who you were talking to. It got everything from like one to two stars out of four. Some people gave it like three stars out of four. Uh, I don't think that this got a Roger Ebert review. I could be wrong about that. But like, it was a relatively low key movie and the people that saw we're like okay yeah maybe maybe not and i i think that maybe contributed a little bit more to it and i mean it's got a cult following but again people don't know about it on rotten tomatoes it's got a 42 percent tomato meter score but it has a 94 percent audience score that's like a classic telltale sign of cult film oh yeah like if it's like a really low tomato score but like a really high audience score yeah and even on imdb it's taken a a 7.9 out of 10 which is actually really impressive yeah that i mean like there are like critically acclaimed movies that have a 7.9 yeah and like that's really awesome for them that they got this i don't think that it paid off for them monetarily but again it's not like they're really allowing it they're not really putting the product out there for people to get it's really hard to find unless you're just watching like a rip on youtube you gotta buy it right it and like i did like i i went i had to order it from amazon because you can't you can't even just go to like fye and buy this shit (laughs) like you got like it's almost like you have to know about it. it's almost like a club it's very weird yeah yeah it's an experience um let's circle back around and talk about this because i feel like this is really really important for this film what kind of responsibility do you think that like media has to reflect the truth about culture and like the truth according to who sensationalization can breed exploitation and like that's a problem but it it can warp people's perceptions of things you know like when we saw like a, a cannibal holocaust type movie like how many people didn't even think about like amazonian tribes people before that movie came out and then they hear about this infamous amazon 
Amazon cannibal movie and they're like, oh my God, crazy stuff goes on in the Amazon hunt because it was the 70s. And like that, that's just kind of the information wasn't so readily available. Right. And I th- this is like a very touchy, tricky subject because when you do movies like that, like it, it's all about and it's it's the big like you know word that i use here whenever we're talking about this is intent like what is the intent of like something like cannibal holocaust that was intentionally supposed to be exploitative it was intentional to like paint the those native people as like monsters this movie i would like i'm gonna use blood in blood out here i don't think that the point was to be exploitative and if there is anything exploitative in it i'm 98 percent sure it's like studio interference and that's kind of like where you get like that's where you get into the shit of this it's like you can go into something with like the best intentions but like let's say that this movie was written by somebody like no matter what race what religion what creed they just did not live in that area like they didn't actually know what was going on and some studio was like hey we want to make you know the godfather but with like east la like hispanic gangs and like they just hire somebody who lives in like england to write that like that that's where the problem comes in this movie seemed to be written by people who knew what was going on there or had some sort of connection to what was going on there so like in that way i don't think it's exploitation but if the studio wanted them to like let's say i don't know like it's this movie would be a bad example of it but like something like cannibal holocaust where it's like oh yeah definitely like you know make them look like assholes Right. No, I see what you're talking about. And I think it's funny that you should mention that because like specifically with Damien Chapa. So he's like the star of the film. Right. And he constantly gets called out in the movie for like being white or looking white or whatever. Believe it or not, they could not have picked a better person to play this role because Damien Chapa, when you look at like some of his work and stuff, he actually comes from a Latino background. So his grand he has a grandparent who is Latino and growing up, all of his other relatives were white. And so when he spent time with his grandmother, she only spoke to him in Spanish. She took him to all the places that, you know, center around Spanish Spanish life, you know, life in like South Texas, North Mexico. And that became a big part of him. But he felt kind of ostracized by everybody else in his life. And it kind of made a division in him. And I think there's a lot of people that can relate to that type of thing where, you know, people look at you and have an expectation. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that like, there's more to you than that. Right. It's like it's and I think this movie does a really good job of that. And I would say that like, maybe some people would say that this movie is a little odd for that. And maybe that's also kind of why it's a hard sell. But at the same time, like, I mean, like, this is a real experience that people have. I mean, you know, especially when you come from a family with multiple cultural backgrounds, it's like, like, where do I belong in society then? Like, in my family, like, you know, it's kind of, it is what it is. But like, when I go out into society, it's like, it's like you said, like, what expectations are put on me? And I think the movie does a really good job of portraying that. And like, I mean, like, Miklos, like, pretty much rejects his father, who is, um... He is the white family member, yeah. He's the white family member. Like, he completely rejects that side of himself. Yeah, because, I mean, his father had resentment toward him, but but maybe that was a part of the resentment. Correct. And then, like, but at the same time, because of that, he's not quite as accepted as his cousins in the society that he chooses to belong to. And that sucks. So it's it's almost like the movie's trying to show, like, it goes both ways. And And that's also, like, especially in, like, the current climate, that's kind of a hard sell. Yeah, I see that. But But it is an important... Important experience.
experience that people have that does deserve to be explored in a certain capacity. Absolutely. I mean, like, I think that everyone's story deserves to be told. Now, like, you know, I don't mean like, you know, Karen, who works in finance, deserves to have her own movie. But like, I feel like everyone's experience deserves to be told because just like this movie, like, I mean, like, I don't know what it was like to live in East LA in like the early 70s, early 80s. Like, I don't know what that was like. Yeah, no, so, and like, they already have Legally Blonde for those people who work in finance. <laughs> exactly. So, like, you know, like, everyone's story deserves to be told, and I'm glad that this movie exists, and I wish that more people saw it, because while it is dated and there are some, like, rough parts of the movie, like, to get through, I do still think it's worth a watch. Like, maybe in two sittings. Um, I think I kind of did this in two sittings. Like, I watched half the first part of the day, and then the other half another part of the day. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot to take in at once. It is, but... Like, it is a complete cinematic experience on its own. I do want to see, like, the longer cut of this movie, though, because, like, it in cutting so much, the movie kind of asks you to accept certain things, like, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not paying attention, like, it kind of messes you up. Like, um, like specifically the scene where um, we find out that the um, the older cousin of the two brother, the of the two cousins of Miklos, the older one, I can't remember his name right now, they, you know, they kind of show him becoming a cop. Yeah, but yeah, like, that's, uh, but it's, that's Paco. It, Paco, but it starts with him showing him being undercover, and you're not quite sure which brother it is. Right. And so it's kind of like, they ask you to accept things very quickly and like that whole scene felt very odd because I'm like because it's like okay so who am I watching right now and it's just kind of I don't know like I feel like I feel like that part of it could have been done better but at the same time they had to cut five hours into three hours and I think the three hours is the director's cut I think the 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 theatrical version was even shorter than that it's like just under three hours Mm, okay yeah I didn't know that yeah so like the the version that you could buy on dvd right now for five dollars by the way like five dollars is like nothing like buy this movie um it's uh it's the director's cut Mm, so that's the one you want i I guess i mean i think the one that everyone would kind of want would be like the full version but we'll never get it so this is the most complete version you can get yes okay okay well i mean this has been a huge and important film for us uh it, it brings a lot to the table and it doesn't get talked about a lot so i'm happy to have covered it and i mean i'm glad that you kind of found a similar thing there yeah i mean like this is definitely a worthwhile movie it's not a movie that i'm gonna throw on every day or like every year but it might be a movie like i'll see it sitting on my shelf and i'm like you know what i haven't watched that in a while and this is literally the only way i can watch it so in a way it's almost kind of cool it's almost like ooh, i have a secret right <laughs> but uh that, that and like th- that's the only other thing i would say about this is like there's so much media that hasn't made its way to modern formats and like probably never will and like this is one of them but i this is one that i do legitimately hope gets a better release one day yeah i think so too i I even think that this idea this concept maybe even these characters maybe even deserve a remake i mean i feel like there's a lot that can be done with it and there's a lot of ways that we could address it i mean with modern filmmaking and like a modern attitude and a modern perspective like this could also be really really interesting a24 get on it get on it uh elon musk get on it (laughs) bill gates um come out of retirement make blood in blood out the remake please do the only film in his entire directorial catalog (laughs) okay so i think if you have nothing else john i think that's gonna wrap it up for this week a nice like 
quick but succinct little episode, I think. Um, we are still growing our audience, and if you came for Blood In, Blood Out, or you came for something else, and you're, you know, kind of listening along here, um, thank you for being here. We appreciate you. We love our fans, quote-unquote. We don't fucking know you, but we're glad you're here. Um, if you haven't, uh, try and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I, like, I hate asking for a five-star glowing review, but the reason that we do that is because when you do that, it gives us more visibility to other people that, like, even, like, paid advertisements can't give us. Mm-hmm. Like, it's insane, like, how much we grow when just people could just see us. And that, uh, well, they can't actually see us because I'm just a voice in your car or in your headphones. Uh, yeah, it's, a com- it's an phone. audio medium through and through. <laughs> so, like, you can't see me, but, like, I would like to be heard. We do put a lot of work into this podcast, believe it or not. <laughs> so, anyway... With all that being said, for For Your Information, I'm Zach Graham. And I'm John Kaplan. Go watch a new movie this week, and always remember the wise words of Miklos. When you expect nothing, and get everything. That's destiny. Thanks, guys. 